Hi, this is Pastor James Strickland, and you are listening to our sermon cast for Homeland Park Baptist Church. If you brought your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Peter. We'll be starting in just a moment in verse 12. Uh, we did the first half last week of chapter 1, and uh, we will be talking more about Peter and his desire for the church this morning. God. Thank you so much for what we've already experienced in worship to this point, Lord. Lifting up your praises, Lord, in Christ alone is where we find our trust and our faith and our love and our salvation, Lord. So we celebrate you, Lord. This is your time. This is your message. This is your word that we are reading. And may your spirit reach hearts, Lord, for it's in your name we pray. Amen. I'd also like to say hello to our friends that are watching by way of our Facebook Live page. I'm very appreciative of those that watch and so thankful that Trista kind of interacts with with them as well. And uh, so we are so grateful to have them here today as well. Our message today, the title of it is God's Word is the Final Word. God's Word is the Final Word. Kind of like when you used to ask your parents something And you said, why, 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 until finally they played the card because I said so, and you knew it was over. God's word is the final word. And you see, as Christians, we must know God's word to believe God's word. And to know and believe God's word, it requires for us to know that God's word is the ultimate authority on everything. This world is crying out today to see believers who live their lives according to the Bible in a way that is loving, in a way that shows others that the Bible is true, that is an infallible and an errant, and that their actions prove that. Well, as we continue in Peter's second letter, we find the apostle reminding the believers to get back to the basics. Now, those of you that know a little bit about football, you may remember Coach Vince Lombardi. Well, Vince Lombardi was the infamous coach of the Green Bay Packers in 1961. And I can speak from experience. Often the first days of practice of a new season, they set the tempo for the entire season. And Green Bay had just suffered a heartbreaking loss in the final NFL championship in the last season. They lost it to the Philadelphia Eagles in the fourth quarter. So many of the Packers that returned for the new season, they remembered that. and They wanted to to get back to work, but yet they still had the new guys that were coming on. So what do you do as a coach when you have veterans that left on a defeated season and are coming back, and then you have new guys? And so what he did is just, it's mind-blowingly simple, but yet so powerful. He held up a football, and he said, gentlemen, this is a football. I think some of our teams today could could uh, could benefit from this speech. Guys, this is a football. This is why we are here. And he said this as he held up the football to show the entire team that from that point on they would be going back to the basics. Then he had everyone open up their playbooks and they started on page one where they began to learn The fundamentals of blocking, tackling, throwing, and hopefully catching the football. Maybe he needed to introduce them to the end zone to let them know what that looked like. But this was clearly not what they expected because some of those players 
They were experienced. And then there were some that had not spent any time in professional sports. But that was the leveling field. He said, gentlemen, this is a football. We're going to get back to playing football. Did you know by returning back to the basics focus of football, the Green Bay Packers won the NFL championship against the New York Giants in a shutout game of 37 to nothing that season because they got back to the basics. You see, Peter spent a majority of his first letter of 1 Peter preparing God's people to find joy in suffering and to trust God that God would bring the justice that they seek and that he would give them their rewards. So last Sunday, Peter instructed us on the importance of growing our faith because things that we will face in the days ahead will need to be met with that stronger faith. You ever thought about that? God is growing you today to prepare you for tomorrow. Yes, he says, don't worry about today. Today's got enough trouble of its own. I'll be with you. But those lessons that you are learning in faith are preparing you for what is to come. So today, Peter gives this this speech. Peter tells us, ladies and gentlemen, this is a Bible. That's what Peter is saying today. This is a Bible. And many of us, we come to church with so many different reasons. Maybe it's because we always do. Maybe it's because we were singing. Maybe it's because I'm preaching. Maybe it's because you, you, had, you were on the schedule to do something. But, but when you get down to it, when you get down to the brass taxes, the reason we are here, this is the Bible. This is why we are here. And so he is really giving us a wake-up call today to get back to the basics. So let's just jump right into the Scripture. The first thing we see Peter is telling the church and telling us today is to commit to God's Word. Commit to God's Word. It says in verses 12 through 15, he says, Therefore, I will always remind you about these things, even though you already know them and are standing firm in the truth you have been taught. What is he saying? He said, hey, y'all, you're doing good. You're doing great. But let me just keep reminding you not only what you're doing, but why you are doing what you are doing. And then 13 says, it's only right that I should keep on reminding you as long as I live. For our Lord Jesus Christ has shown me that I must soon leave this earthly life. Some translations say, I must shed this tent. So, verse 15, so I will work hard to make sure you always remember these things after I am gone. Well, as we go back and look at verse 11, he says, then God will give you, uh, verse 11, right before verse 12, says, then God will give you a grand entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the reason I went back to show you verse 11, because look at verse 12. He says, therefore, after that. You see, Peter reminded God's people of the goal, the end game, the finish line. And that was and still is the promise of entering into God's everlasting kingdom. That is the, the Stanley Cup. That is the Super Bowl trophy. That is the Olympic medal. That is what we as Christians are striving for. 
The longer you are a Christian, though, the more tempting it is to rest in your faith of yesterday. Assume that you have learned all there is to know about the Christian life. Maybe to go on autopilot until life comes along and knocks your feet out from under you. Folks, harder times are ahead. And it's time for you and I as Christians and as a church to get back to the basics and prepare ourselves. And this is what Peter is asking the church to do. You see, remembering your commitment to God's Word is a good and necessary thing. I don't want people that are at Holman Park Baptist Church that are committed to Holman Park Baptist Church. I don't want people at Holman Park Baptist Church that are committed to Pastor James or the former pastors or a certain leader, a certain person, or a certain program. I want people that are committed to God's Word. So that's why every time I get up in front of you, I try to proclaim God's Word. It's not the building that we are in. It is not the people that we follow. It is God's Word, and that is what we are ultimately committed to. You see, it's all all about priorities. Peter considered his body no more than a tent. You know, a tent is a temporary place to live. You take care of it, but it's not like you're going to put a whole lot of money into it. I remember Don and I have had the, I would say, opportunity or, uh, I don't Anyway, we lived in apartments for a couple of times. We lived in apartments when we first got married. We lived in apartments when we first came here. And uh, the apartments are, in most cases, a temporary dwelling. We took care of the apartments we lived in because we didn't want to have to forfeit the deposit, right? But we took care of the place. But as far as making big plans or renovations or making it our own, I mean, we had put some pictures up and do some furniture and all that kind of stuff, but we knew that that wasn't our place that we wanted to to settle in. And folks, too many, maybe even you, are spending all your time and your resources investing on this temporary dwelling called your life. Look, I'm not saying that you don't need to take care of yourself. I'm not saying you don't need to strive to to do well, but I'm saying at the end of the day, this, okay, well, I'm 80 years old, preacher. 80 years old is just a drop in a bucket to eternity, my friend. And so let's not focus all everything on our physical tent and not give God's word the priority it deserves because we know that one day we will have Our eternal home. So Peter is reminding you and I of the basics today. Loving God and loving others. Don't be a jerk. And know what you believe. And when you make mistakes, it's okay as a believer to make mistakes. But the thing is, you've got to make corrections. There's this bumper sticker that you've probably seen before that says, He who dies with the most toys wins. He who dies with the most toys wins. And my question is, what do you win? What do you win if you spend all your life accumulating all of these things? The man who supposedly coined that term was a cocky millionaire named Malcolm Forbes. So that was what he said. What do you win? At the end of the day, with all of your stuff that you have accumulated, do you win an estate sale? Do you win a truckload of stuff taken to the landfill? 
Do you win a family that is fighting over what is left before your body's even cold? Do you win a building or a monument with your name on it? All of these things will be great for a moment, but then one day they will be gone. How many times, I can't tell you the number of times, I've driven, or not driven, but ridden or driven or whatever with people from our church that that have been here for a long time, and I always love to hear them say, well, you know, this is where the so-and-so was. This is where you-know-who was. This is where this store was. Oh, I remember when this happened. It's great to hear that history, folks. And then we can go to uh, a very popular cemetery or graveyard, or we can go back and we can remember those that have been here, but they had their time here, and then they were gone. He who dies with the most toys wins. Wins what? Here's a life question for you to ponder. Are you committed to learning God's word and living it out? Or meeting your own desires and needs? It's a pretty simple question. Look, I don't expect, when I say this, I don't expect you and I to be sitting around and walking in, in life with our Bibles in front of our noses like this all the time. But I am saying that is the Bible a factor in your life? Is this where you go to get wisdom? Because if your priority that you have made is yourself, if you are trying to please yourself and your wants and your desires first, my friends, you are on shaky ground because you have made yourself an idol. You have put yourself in the place of your life that was meant for God, and God says there are no other idols before me. Yes, my friends, you can be your own idol. On a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being not at all, and ten being constantly, where would you rate your pursuit of God through his word, the Bible? And then when you get that number, are you okay with that? And then this, the follow-up would be, would God be okay with that? But see, to take the sting out of some uh, that have adopted the idea that the Bible is a good book, but it's not really all that important, leads us to our next point. God's Word is authoritative and inerrant. God's Word is authoritative and inerrant. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I feel like that we are in like a discipleship class this morning, but this is what Peter is teaching us in this passage. He says in verse 16, For we are not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about it. If When you were far from the Lord or when you were questioning the Lord or maybe some friends you know of that are questioning the Lord, have you ever thought, thought back and say, you know, I've heard this all my life, but did it really happen or is it like the Mother Goose rhymes my parents used to read to me? Is it a fable? Is it a, is it a story? Those are fair questions, folks. But Peter is saying, look, these are not clever stories. He says, we saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes. He is saying, this is not a mother goose rhyme. This is not a, a tale of lore. This is, I saw it, I have witnessed it, and it has happened. It says in verse 17, when he received honor and glory from the Father, the voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. We ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on that holy mountain. Folks, 
the Bible, meaning God's Word, is not a collection of fables and fairy tales. It is God's authoritative Word. Now, I'm going to tell you why. These, this is a very extremely broad-brushed approach of that, and we could dig deeper if you would like sometime. But the reason we know that God's Word is authoritative, there are a few reasons I'm going to share with you. First of all is the cannon. Now, when I say cannon, I don't mean something that shoots a big ball out, okay? That is not the kind of cannon I'm talking about. Uh, these 39 books of the Old Testament from the, from the Bible of predominantly Jewish text, and then the, the New Testament, 27 books, were put together, and the, these list of books became the canon or the Bible, some of you that have studied about other faith, you will know that there have been other books written. Some even were candidates to be put into the Bible. But the canon refers to the books regarded as inspired and authoritative. They are inspired by God and they are authoritative for faith in life. Kind of like if you've ever studied, or not studied, but if you've ever followed a series like a movie series, a book series. Like I remember when I was a kid, I saw Star Wars, and all of a sudden uh, I saw all these books about Star Wars, and there were so many stories about And even those of you that have Disney+, Plus, you probably, those of you that remember the original movies, are probably like, what is this? Because they have gone so far from the original canon of characters. What is officially Star Wars? And whatever series you want to look at. So canon is, means that these are books in a series that are authoritative and seen as inspired. Now, I also want to tell you that when these books were placed together, they didn't just randomly say, hey, that guy was an apostle, let's put him in here. Hey, you know, you know that prophet, they were, they were pretty close to what, what we, they weren't trying to build a narrative here, folks. They weren't trying to spin something to make sure it works. Because you know what? If human hands would have been the architects of God's Word, it never would have become what it is today. You see, the criteria was, when they were choosing which books to put in, number one, was the book written by a prophet of God, an actual prophet of God? Was the book confirmed by the acts of God? Did we see God act in a way that, it, that it's talking about? Did its message tell the truth about God? Is there any way that book may have, have skewed the character or the actions of God? Is, is that really on par with what God is and what the Bible should be? Also, does it come with the power of God? Is this a really good read or do we see God's power in it? And then the fifth one is, was it accepted by the people of God. The reason that these books are the canon, these 66 books are placed together, is because as a consensus, these are the ones that everybody agreed matched the stories that they had heard, matched the text that they had found, and everything. This was the general belief of everybody on these things. Now what about sources? Sources. The most well-known common Sources are something called the Dead Sea Scrolls, and those basically were religious writings found in 11 caves in a place called Qumran. About 230 manuscripts are referred to as biblical scrolls. So people weren't just freehanding all of these things. These are actual texts that they have 
found. And then witnesses. Some people think that gospel and the biblical record are just ancient myths. They may admire their power as myths. Some religions, well, I don't say religions, some cults, they regard Jesus as a good teacher, but they don't consider him divine. They don't consider God's word authoritative. But yet, Peter rightly insisted that his message was no myth. It was history. He said right here when you read it, I've seen it with my own eyes. And think about it this way. Peter knows his days are numbered. Many of the disciples were martyred for their faith. Would a Christian, would a disciple, would an apostle, would you die for your faith if it was a myth? Would you die for your faith if this was not true? And then, of course, as Peter says here, the transfiguration. This is the account of the power of God witnessed through his people. When he says, we saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes. It says, Jesus was honored by God. What was he doing? Peter was remembering this time with Luke, John, Moses, and Elijah. At Jesus' transfiguration. We see accounts of that in Matthew 6, Mark 13, and Luke 9. This wasn't an isolated thing. This was something that happened. And as awesome as that experience was... It did not transform their lives only by being born again in the Spirit of God. That will change and transform our lives. And then there were prophecies. Did you know that in the Old Testament there are at least 332 distinct Old Testament predictions regarding the Messiah that Jesus fulfilled perfectly? 332 prophecies, promises, foreshadowings of what Jesus the Messiah would be. Professor Peter Stoner has calculated that the probability of one man fulfilling only eight of those 325 prophecies, the probability of one man fulfilling eight of them is one in ten to the 17th power. I don't even know what number that is. So you take a 10 and you put 17 zeros after that. That's the likelihood that eight things would come true in one person. Did you know that if you consider 48 prophecies, it would be 10 to the 157th power. If you took silver dollars, they would cover the state of Texas twice, two feet deep. That's how many probabilities that even 48 of those 320 some would be real. Folks, this is not an accident. So our life point here is that you have heard God speak to your heart you have seen him work in your life. Folks, you are a witness. Look, we can, get, we can meet afterwards and we can go eat some lunch or we can go grab some coffee and read the finer things of doctrine and all those great things in the Bible. But I'll tell you what, you can tell me that I'm full of, of marshmallows and, and, and dreams when I'm sitting here preaching about this stuff. But I can tell you, I have experienced, I know what Jesus Christ did in my life. 
He transformed me. I was the witness. I was there. You weren't. And I am the authority on that. You, my friend, you have a testimony of when Jesus Christ came into your life. And it doesn't matter how many degrees that person posts on their LinkedIn profile. You are the authority of your life. Because of Peter's words, experience, and eyewitness accounts, you can believe the prophecies of the Old Testament that proclaim Jesus is the Messiah. You are a witness, folks. Then the third point, you can be confident in God's Word. You can be confident in God's Word. He says, because of that experience, we have been even, we have been given even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. You must pay close attention to what they wrote, for their words are like lamps shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and Christ, the morning star, shines in your hearts. And then verse 20. When he says above all, I would venture to say this is important. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. What we see here is that Peter is instructing the church to pay close attention to the writings of Scripture and to what he is saying because these things are bringing light to darkness. Minds that are blind to evil and God's grace are opening them. Christ is the morning star. He shines, or some translations say rises, He shines in your hearts and chases away the darkness just like sunrise. There was a time in my life where my life was filled with darkness. I was spiritually blind. I didn't know God. I didn't know His plan for my life. I could not read God's Word because I could not understand it. And I was blind. I was driving my life into a ditch. And then by God's grace, He saved me. And I hope you have a similar testimony as well. Maybe you weren't rescued from anything. Maybe you've been a Christian all your life. Think about the way he has guided you ever since you can remember. But verse 20, again, above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding. Folks, men and women have thought of themselves as smart and spoke against the authority of God's Word, thereby elevating themselves in their minds and their audiences to a God status. And uh, basically, not to get too deep into the woods, but that's a, a term called logical positivism. Can you say logical positivism? Well, no, preacher, I can't, but if they have something in the drugstore, I'll get for it. Basically, what that means is, is that you cannot make a claim unless you can verify what you are claiming. So, if you claim that God is not real, if you claim that God's Word is not true, you need to be a God yourself to verify that statement. Is that fair? I'm not an astronaut, so I can't tell you how to get to the moon. But I can tell you how to get to heaven. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from a prophet's own understanding. 
You can say there is no God and his word has no authority, but it doesn't make any merit unless you are a God yourself. Those types of statements need to be verifiable. Someone comes to me and says, Preacher, there is no God. (laughs) Okay. That's a great claim. Now support it. And then what you see is people will give you about 10 minutes of what they read on Twitter. No, no God's word, no authoritative sources, just amalgamation of what their friends have said and what their favorite social media feed says. So let me, let me show you this. This is a teaching moment here. There are three sources for the scripture. Three sources for the scripture. I tried to make it easier by putting those little icons there. Three sources of scripture. This is how we get the word of God. There's three things. There is revelation, there is inspiration, and there is illumination. Revelation is individuals who received God's truth supernaturally. Someone like Moses. Someone like the prophets where God spoke to them and then they eventually wrote those things down. God God gave these people, he revealed himself. To them. That's why they call it revelation. Then you have inspiration. That is where God breathed his word to the page through his writers without error. Now, again, that's why if you take like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and you, some, of the, some of the accounts are mentioned by each one of them. Some of them are not, but some of them are. And so those accounts that are mentioned by them... Some of them will put in details that the other one didn't see because their vocabulary was different. Their experiences were different. But still, at the end of the day, that was God's words that they wrote down. For example, when you look at the crucifixion and you look at the book of Luke, it is far more detailed, the crucifixion, because he was a physician. He understood those things. John was more of a storyteller. That's why a majority of his book reads like just a story. God used those writers, their personalities, God used them to write down his words. They were his words, not theirs, but God inspired them to write them. And then we have illumination. This is where you and I come in. The Holy Spirit enables believers to understand and apply his revealed and inspired word in their lives personally. So, revelation and inspiration, those are things only God can do. That God orchestrated. And whether you believe it or not, God did them. Okay? And then the third thing, illumination. You know that moment when you read the scriptures and all of a sudden... The the preacher didn't have to tell you. Your Bible study teacher didn't have to tell you. Your Bible app didn't have to tell you. Your Bible study didn't have to tell you. You you read this and God spoke to you through this word. That is the Holy Spirit. That is God through his Holy Spirit illuminating in your heart what God's word says. And I will tell you, if the only time you read the Bible is when I'm up here preaching one day a week, illumination is not a big deal because all you're getting is what God is telling me and not what God is telling you. A mama bird 
will feed her babies. She'll go out. She'll get the worms. She'll eat the worms. Her stomach will process it. And then she will regurgitate it into her baby's mouth so they can get the nutrients from it because their systems cannot process that worm by itself at such a young age. As I study and and I I seek to, to teach what the Lord has laid on my heart, you are getting what I have processed. But my friends, grow in your faith to the point to where you can find it for yourself. If you need tools, if you need resources, if you need plans, I'll be glad to set you up with that. You don't need me to understand Scripture, but there is one thing. You do need this if you want to understand Scripture. And there's nothing I can do about this. You do need one thing to understand Scripture. And it's not a concordance. It's not a study Bible. It's not an easy translation. It is the Holy Spirit. Because, my friends, if you do not have the Holy Spirit in your life, you will not be able to understand what is here. Some of you have the story of, you know what, preacher? I was sitting down one day, and I hadn't read the Bible much, but I read it that day, and it was speaking to me. Folks, that was the Holy Spirit drawing you. You were learning from the Bible because the Holy Spirit was on your heart. Peter heard the words of God supernaturally through revelation. Through inspiration, God wrote the words through Peter using his personality, his vocabulary, his characteristics. And then we read this word as God's word, as the Holy Spirit illuminates its truth in our lives. If you do not have the Holy Spirit, illumination is impossible. And if you do not have the Holy Spirit, it's because you do not have Jesus Christ as your Savior. My friends, if you prayed a prayer when you were three years old at VBS and you shook the hand of a preacher that's dead and gone, and it has never changed your life, and you are living like hell today, I'm going to go ahead and tell you there was no transformation, there was no conversion, and you need to get right today because you will never understand God's Word unless you have the Holy Spirit inspiring you and illuminating you to do so. So as we wrap up, as a believer, you need God's Word to live life as God intended it. You realize, I mean... I've got a buddy, he sells washers and dryers. I've got other friends that sell other things. Some of you, you'll go to the store, you'll, you'll buy these things, and they come with, with all of these books. Here's your manuals. Who reads them? Anybody? No. I'll put them in a drawer if I need them. I'll Google it if I have a problem. Well, here's the thing. This is the manual to life. And I think sometimes we treat it the same way. We're going to throw it on our nightstand. We're going to throw it on our bookshelf. We're going to put it in the back seat of our car. And we'll pull it out again next Sunday when we need it. But that's not the way God intended. This is the owner's manual. This is what God has given us to live a life as God intended it. Let me ask you something. Would you rather live life your way? Or would you rather live the life God has intended you to live? It's a fair question. And I don't know what the difference is. But I just know this. I know in my life when I wanted things my way, kind of like the old Burger King slogan, you can have it your way. I thought I was happy for a moment, but then something else would come along. But when you live life God the way he has ordained it. I'll leave you with this passage. 1 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. 
Actually, it's not 1 Timothy. It should be 2 Timothy. My notes are wrong. The screen is right. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture, all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. Folks, God's Word is the MRI for your soul. There are things going on in your body that you cannot see unless you get on a special machine that can take pictures of your insides. And they say, oh, this is a problem. We need to fix that. That's what God's Word does to your soul. You read this so the, the, the MRI of the Bible will show you things in your life you need to fix. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Look at verse 17. Oh, preacher, I can't do anything for the Lord. I'm too old. I'm too big. I'm too small. I'm too young. I'm too this. I'm too that. God's word says that everything in this word, God will use it to prepare you and equip you to do every good work. My friends, God will not call you to something that he won't equip you with the tools to do it. Folks, you need scripture. I need scripture. Peter warns of false teachers to come. And if you don't, folks, you will be carried away by false teachings. I've got to tell you just a personal word. There have been times in my life Recently and, and, and far back, there have been times in my life to where I am reading the Bible and I'm reading it for what I can tell you. Oh, I got this many sermons to do this week. I got this many things to write. I got this many things. Okay, I need to do this. And it's almost like a chef getting all the ingredients together and trying to, okay, this is going to be it. This is going to be that. And then all, those, all of a sudden, I realize that my tank is empty because I haven't been reading it for me. And there are times, there, there's been a couple times in my life where I got a skewed view of God because I spent more time worried about my circumstances than what God's Word has said. God's Word has pulled me out of the ditch time and time again because you think you know God. You think you know Jesus. But if you are not reading God's Word the only view of God you have is a construct that you have made in your own mind. And that's a scary place to be. Folks, this is a Bible. It's time to get back to the basics. This is what our entire Christian faith is based on. It's time to read it, to memorize it, to share it, to test it. Test. We don't test God, but you can put his word to the test. These are, these are commands and, and promises that he has given you, and he is going to back them up. Test it. Share it and use it. And if, if you leave here today and you say, oh, well, that, that sermon was kind of different today. It was a, you know, he was really serious today about the Bible and stuff. Man, 
Where's that touchy-feely thing I wanted? If you want the touchy-feely, read God's Word. Go to the book of Psalms. You'll get lots of touchy-feely. Read about what Jesus did for you. You'll get a lot of touchy-feely. Read about the fact that you are a sinner and you need a Savior and you need to repent from your sin, from your sin and confess it. You'll get a lot of good touchy-feelies there and it won't be me telling you. It'll be God himself telling you. And my friends, if you don't know where to start, talk with me, talk with your Bible study teacher, Google it. We'll get you some resources. Because if you walk away, I remember back in the day, and I promise I'm closing up. If you remember back in the day, when, when I was a youth pastor, we would have these retreats. We'd have things called Disciple Nows. Y'all ever went to a Disciple Now? Oh, man, well, let me tell you what those were. It was one of two options. You would, A, either take the whole youth group and go to a camp somewhere. Youth pastor would bring in a couple of his friends, and you would break off into grades or small groups, and you would do nothing but go through the Bible for the entire weekend. And then when you got back, you would be making commitments. Yes, I'm going to throw the stick in the fire, and I'm going to commit to the Lord. And when I get back, when I get home, I'm going to read the Bible seven days a week. And you make those kind of commitments. Or then if you didn't go to a camp somewhere, you would have church members that were brave enough to open their homes and let the kids stay in the home for a sleepover, about ten kids. And you would put a speaker in that room or in that house. And they would all weekend, they would teach them the Bible. And again, commitments of, I'm going to read my Bible more. You ask them, nine times out of ten, you ask somebody, what are you going to do to be a better Christian? Well, I'm going to read my Bible more. And then it becomes a checklist. Okay, I did it today, I did it today, I, oh, I missed one. Shoot. Oh, shoot, I missed the second one. Oh, shoot, I missed the third one. And before you know it, it's a month since you read the Bible for yourself. Don't make a commitment for a certain number of Bible, uh, days to read the Bible. Just to make a commitment to do it. And I promise you, as you start reading it, you will begin to desire it. If I miss it, there are things happen, and I miss a day from devotions, from my, from my devotions with the Lord. But I got to tell you, after the second day, I feel it. I'm, I mean, I'm sitting here. Oh, I've already packed it up. But I've got, you see me carry a little journal around with me. I started journaling that, and I can just, I can, I can see those days to where Scripture is the part of my life, and the days where I, I am not so much with it. And those days, I'm coasting on what I did the days before. My friends, let me just tell you, as your pastor, and as a Christian, and as somebody who doesn't always get it right, if you leave this today, and you if, if you leave this place today and say, you know what, I get the fact that the Bible is important and I need to make it more of a priority of my life, then this entire time has been worth it. Because it is the Bible that will change your lives. We've had a phenomenal service. Our choir was, did amazing. I'm so proud of them. So proud of Donna and John and Trista and Rhett. I am so proud of all of them as they have put that on. But at the end of the day, that's great. But we're here for the Bible. If you need help getting more serious in your Bible reading, let me know. And if you've read the Bible and God has convicted you, you need to do more with that. 
If you want to make a commitment today, here, you can. You can call me later. But this invitation is a time for you to respond, to make God's word a priority in your life again. You can do it where you stand. You can do it here at the altar where I can pray with you. Maybe you want to know the Lord as your Savior. Maybe you want to be baptized. Whatever your decision is, this time is for you to respond.